You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning. I don't know about you guys, but I can relate with some of the stuff on that video a little bit. Can you guys relate? I'm also very glad that I am horrible at writing down New Year's resolutions so that no one will ever find any of mine because I probably had a lot of really dumb ones. Have you guys ever had a, if you look back, have you ever had any sort of silly or dumb New Year's resolutions that you were like, why, what was I thinking? Can you relate with that? I can. And so I'm glad none of mine are available for, for uh, remembering and reading, that's for sure. Um, well, as we start into the new year, right? It's right around the corner. Everybody's definitely making it to midnight tonight, right? <laughs> this is second service. I mean, you guys have got this. You got the extra sleep, right? So the thing is, this time of year, it's all about uh, New Year's resolutions and looking back at the year that we've just come through and looking forward to the year ahead and thinking about all these things. And, and the culture that we live in takes full advantage of this time of year. And like this last week, I've got two gym membership coupons in the mail already. And I've lived here since August and I've never got one. Like not one gym wanted me until this week. And now two of them are fighting over me. Neither will win. Um, but it's, it's just that funny stuff that happens this time of year. So you're going to, you know, your Facebook feed is going to be full of healthy products and, and magic oils that are going to cure everything. And you're going to have all the health foods and the exercise stuff. And it's going to be all about uh, making a commitment to get out of debt and lose weight and get in shape and all that stuff, right? You guys relate to that? And, and it's not that that stuff is bad stuff. It's not that it's bad to lose weight, like some of us need to lose some weight, myself included. I could stand to get in better shape for sure. And some of us need to get out of debt or get a wrangle on our finances and, and take a look at that stuff and, and be intentional about it. And those are good things. But it seems like it's really easy in our culture that, that like the whole, especially first week or two of January, they, it just becomes like a self-obsessed season where it's all about me. You know, like, what am I going to do about me? What am I going to do about my stuff? And for us as a church, as we get ready to, to roll into 2018, I would like for us to maybe think a little bit differently, to maybe look at the year to come with maybe a different question in mind, okay? The question that I want to ask you today is, Honestly, a pretty, I don't know if it was provocative is the right way to say it, but like it, to me, when you, it, the, the answers, the implications of this question are maybe dangerous. It's kind of a challenging question. And for some of you that are married, you know, husbands and wives, you may already wrestle with your spouse on some of this stuff. Your husband or your wife may already struggle with some of this stuff. And you may be the one that's on the other end of it trying to reel them back into reality. Like, no, 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 you actually have to go to work. Like, we have jobs we need to do. There's stuff, there's bills we have to pay. Like, we can't just... So this question we're going to get to is, is going to challenge you. 
And in order to set it up, to kind of get ourselves in the right frame of mind to understand this question, we're going to take a look at uh, a piece of text today that's from a, a book in the Old Testament from one of my favorite Old Testament dudes, Nehemiah. And in order to look at that and kind of get ready, we need to understand the context. Like we need to set the stage for what was going on because we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah, but we don't want to just dive in like into the cold end of the pool, right? Like we want to get acclimated and know what was going on around the time that this was written. It was uh, written about the time of the, uh, just shortly after the Jewish exile. Um, and if you, it was about 605 BC. If you remember, like if you look at modern day Israel, back then it was divided into a north and south kingdom and the Babylonian nation rose up and conquered Judah, the southern nation, and they exiled and drove the Jews God's people out of their homeland. And if you remember the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, those, that story that happened about this same time, it was when they were taken out of their land and forced to go and work for King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? About 70 years this went on. They were in exile. And about 70 years later, another nation rose up, the Persian nation. And the Persians overtook the Babylonians, and there was a guy, Cyrus the Great, that saw that after they had conquered the uh, Babylonians, all these Jewish people were spread all over the land in all these different places, and he sent out a decree, a proclamation, that if you were a Jew and you had been exiled because of the Babylonians, that now you're allowed to go home. You can return. And so he makes this proclamation, and, and with that begins this mass migration of tens of thousands of God's people trying to find their way back to Judah and Jerusalem. Fast forward another 90 years. This is where we meet Nehemiah. Nehemiah, all we really know about Nehemiah is that he is a guy uh, he is uh, a guy that works for King Artaxerxes of Persia. He lives in Persia. He lives in the palace. He works for the king. We don't even know if Nehemiah has ever actually even been to Judah or even seen Jerusalem. There's a lot we don't know about Nehemiah, but there are some things we can learn about him as we dig into this passage today. Now, as we get into this, it's, sometimes it's uh, like habit to say, oh, we're going to look at this Bible story. And it's, I would say, let's break the habit because it's not a Bible story. It's not like we're reading about a fictional myth of some guy that sort of maybe like an imaginary tale. That's not it at all. Nehemiah was a real man at a real point in time. And what we're actually reading is him sitting down and recording like many of us do today in his journal what was going on in his life at the time. And we get this inside look to not only some of the things that were going on, but his, his heart and, and his conversations with God as he wrote out prayers. We get to actually sneak a peek in this guy's journal. And that, what is written out, is what we have in the Bible as the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to dig into that, and then we'll get up back to that question. Let's look at that. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, 
this guy, Hanani, uh, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So here these guys come. Uh, Nehemiah finds that these guys are from his homeland. They're his, his brother and his people. And here he is. I mean, you got to think about it. 70 years in exile, another 90 years removed. This is where we come into the, this conversation happening. Nehemiah is way removed time and proximity and everything from what's going on in his homeland. And yet the first time he meets guys that come from his place, what is on his heart? Like what the thing that he's asking about is like, how's it going back home? Did, it, did everybody actually get to move back in? I mean, it, are we reestablishing the city? I mean, what's the temple look like? I mean, what, is the wall, what, what are the walls looking like? Like, how are the people actually doing? And this is what they said to him. He said, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. They're basically going to Nehemiah and going, it is not going good. It's not going well, not for the people or for the city. The walls are in shambles. The gates are burned down. There are no defenses. I mean, the people that have made it back and did actually survive, not only are they having to deal with the people that had moved in while they were gone, with the other Jews that had intermingled and stayed and adopted pagan worship and, and habits, and there's just this huge mess. And on top of all that, they're defenseless. This thing could fall apart at any time. And here Nehemiah has this response. I mean, just imagine this guy writing this down, like hearing this and sitting and recording in his journal this interaction. This is what he, how he responded. He said, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, and then I said... Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. He's, he's reminding God, like, God, you're a God that keeps his promises. You're a God that keeps his word. Like, you're a God that follows through. He says he keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he's, he's again, it's like he's saying back to God what God already knows, right? But he's trying to remind God, like, like he's putting a pen to paper, his prayer, he's, he's putting it to paper to, to be able to express, God, you're a God that keeps your word. You're a God that loves us who keep your commandments. Because back in the Old Testament time, God had sort of a conditional relationship with his people. And it, was some, it went something like this, paraphrasing loosely. It went something like this, uh, obey my commands and you can stay in your land. Don't obey my commands. Stray from me. Don't obey my commands and embarrass me. Don't obey my commands and laws and, and not be a light to the world anymore and I will remove you from your land and scatter you to the far ends of the earth. And Nehemiah is reminding God like, remember you're, this, you're the God that keeps his covenant of love with those who keep his commandments. Then he says this. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. 
I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. He's, he's going, like, I, it, I'm not blaming it on everybody else. He's not finger pointing. He's, he's calling it out like, I'm just as guilty as they are. I get it. We deserve to be thrown out of town. We deserve, like, uh, like the generations before us, like they stopped following your commandments. And so I get it, Lord. We deserved it. But, but here he is making this confession and, and repenting and asking for God's forgiveness and help. And he continues like this. He says, we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to, be, to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's, he's going to God like, you remember all that stuff in Egypt, right, God? Like, you remember that we were exiled in Egypt, far from you, cried out, and you redeemed your people back to yourself, like that you rescued and saved us. We were scattered far away, and you brought us home. He's, he's crying out to God, going, are you the same God? Will you do it again? Will you redeem us again? Will you draw us back from these scattered out places? And those that have come back, will you help us redeem and restore our land? He says, they are your servants, the Israelites, are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. He says, this is where it's interesting because he kind of wraps up this prayer and he actually, I want you to note this, like he actually asks God something really specific. He says, Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, here's what's going on with Nehemiah. Nehemiah lives in the palace and is in daily contact and serves the king of Persia, who was at the time probably the most powerful man on earth. And here he comes and serves him and works in this palace in this beautiful, amazing place. And he's about to go before the king and ask for a favor. And not just any favor, but he's about to go before the king and ask if he can have an indefinite leave of absence. Like any one of us to go to our job and to talk to our boss and say, can I have a, a leave of absence? I'm not sure when I'm going to be back. Like that would be a little nerve wracking for anybody, much less him going to the king. And he says, I'm going to need an indefinite leave of absence. And not only that, but I, I really need to leave this amazing job I have. And I, I need to go to Jerusalem and help my people. I need to rebuild the wall and help them get reestablished. And, and it's a risky proposition for him to go to the king. It's risky because you don't go to the king and ask for favors, right? You go to the king and the king tells you what to do. You don't come asking him what to do. And it's not only risky for that reason, but it's also risky because what if the king says yes? Because if the king says yes, here you've got Nehemiah 
who has to give up this position, his status, his very comfortable lifestyle, and go to a far-off place that we don't even know if he's ever been there in his life or even seen it. But from what he's heard, it's not a great destination. It's a mess. And I love how he wraps up this thing. I just imagine him writing this out in his journal as he's just kind of recording what's going on with him and God and what's happening at the time. And he wraps it up and he says, I was cupbearer to the king. It's like God's about to do something radical with Nehemiah. It's going to completely change his vocation, his identity, his mission. And he, he wraps it up by going like, I was cupbearer to the king. It's sort of like that cliffhanger, like, well, then what? It brings us back to that question, right? This question's sort of a, sort of a crazy question. And I'll warn you right now, like you probably, some of you might have an answer right away at the tip of your tongue, but probably most won't. It's one of those questions where you're going to have to chew on it for a while. You're going to have to stew on it, maybe for a week, maybe for a month. You might have to really wrestle with God on this one, but I hope and pray that you do. You ready for the question? Here it is. What breaks your heart? It's not a complicated question, but it's a really complicated answer. What breaks your heart? When we think about what was going on, what Nehemiah was willing to give up, what he was willing to do, he heard this report and his heart was broken and he hit his knees and he wept. I mean, what breaks our heart? When we look around our town, when we look around the Palouse, when we look around the region, when we look around and we see what's going on with kids in the world, with the education system, with the government, with marriages in our, our culture and our community, when we see beyond out to the United States, I mean, like, when you look out, what breaks your heart? And you may be like, man, there's like a hundred things. It's that thing that when you have quietness in your mind and quietness in your life, and maybe it's when you first wake up or you're on a long drive somewhere, and it's that thing that keeps popping up in your craw. It's that thing that it's stirring your heart and it's, it's popping into your head and it just keeps showing up. And you're like, why do I keep thinking about this? And it's that thing that if you honestly let yourself slow down and chew on it a little bit, it's just maybe uncomfortable. You're like, I don't know if I want to really actually think about that. I mean, because what am I going to do about it anyway, right? It's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. Nothing's going to change. Like, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do anything about it. And so then you start to make those internal excuses and you start to think about like, you know, I'm, I'm too young. I, I don't even have the resources for that. Or I'm too old. Nobody's going to listen to me on that one. Or I'm too middle class. Like that's, that's a, a that I totally wouldn't fit in dealing with that issue. 
I don't have enough time. I'm too busy. I don't have enough money. And you start to kind of sell yourself off of chewing on this thing that, that God is pressing on your heart. And I can tell you, if, if as a Christian, if you don't wrestle with this question, especially in this year to come, I mean, if you don't really genuinely pause and think about, like, what is really going on, I can tell you how your future is going to look. Here's some things you'll, you'll do, because I do the same thing. All of us do this stuff. We'll go forward in our lives and we'll see the news and we'll watch our Facebook feed and our phone, phone and the newspaper and we'll see whatever's going on in the world or what's going on in our work or in our families and stuff will get in our skin and it will bother us. And I'm not talking about the stuff that makes you mad. I'm not like, oh, this is this righteous indignation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the stuff that when you actually stop and think about it, it's hard to hold a tear back. And, and you'll start to go, man, I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what to do about that. Why is this happening? And then you shift from God's really doing something in your heart and helping you feel this brokenness about something, and you shift away from it and you start to blame. And it's like, well, it's the president's fault, or it's Congress's fault, or it's the PTA's fault, it's the church's fault, it's the pastor's fault, it's my parents' fault, or my siblings' fault. And you start to just shift blame all over the place. And then you start to wrestle with God, like, God, why aren't you doing something about this thing? Why is this still happening? Why do you allow this, God? And it's really easy to slip down the slippery slope of just settling for being frustrated and trying to ignore the hurt in your heart when you think about these things and to just blame other people and push it off on other things. The reality is, though, blame doesn't change anything, right? Like, blaming other people is not a great strategy for change. You get a bunch of people in the room, and they all point at each other. You did it, you did it, you did it, you did it. It's your fault, your fault. Like, does anything ever get changed? No, not at all. The reality is, though, if we are Christians, okay, let me, sometimes that word, everybody sort of just uses it loosely. Like, if you are, I believe in Jesus, I believe that he died on the cross, that he rose again and conquered death, and that through faith and trust in him, I can have a right relationship with God, and that I genuinely want to figure out what he lived like, how he was. I want to learn how to follow him and become more like him, that kind of Christian. If you're an actual, legit, I love Jesus and want to follow him Christian, then this idea of like sinking in and addressing like stuff that breaks your heart, like why does God put this stuff on our minds? Why do we care about it? Like it shouldn't hit us out of left field. It should be something that we are familiar with. Jesus showed up on the scene and radically changed how people see other people. He showed people for the first time that God sees everybody as valuable, that everybody has inherent value and worth in God's eyes. 
He showed the people of the time that it doesn't matter if you're a Roman or a slave. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're an adult or a child, that God sees everyone as valuable. And when we start to think about the problems in the world and the things that break our heart and the stuff that God is pushing on our heart, sometimes our own junk gets in the way because we don't, a lot of times, see other people the way God sees people. I don't know if you wrestle with this. For me, personally, this has been a battle my whole life is I am, uh, by nature, a easily critical, judgmental kind of a butthead person. Like that's my, it's not the spiritual gift, obviously, but I'm really good at it, right? I can find a flaw in a minute. And so it, like, it's easy for me to look at people and see something wrong. And it's like, man, does that not jive with how God sees people? And the more and more I become like Christ and the longer I've been a Christian and the more I repent and want to be like Christ, I start to see people differently. And what it means for all of us is that each and every single person we come into contact with, and this is a hard one for me, each and every person we come into contact with is valuable and loved by God. Like, God absolutely loves them. And there are so many times where I'm just like, really? It's hard. But we know that our devotion to God is connected to our devotion and love for other people, right? Our love and devotion for God is connected to our love and devotion for other people. We can't say that we love God and hate people. It doesn't match up. We have to love other people well. And here's the thing. Throughout the history of the church, Christians have been at the heart of some amazing things. Christians who have been devoted to God and loved God and loved people the way God loves people have been a part of some amazing things. Part of the heritage of our faith is that Christians have been known for building hospitals, right? Not for Christian people, but for people people. Christians have been known for building orphanages, right? Not for Christian kids who need a home, for any kid who needs a home. Christian people have been known for taking medical missions trips and going on missionary journeys, not to just help Christian people that need help, but to help all people. Christians were at the heart of the abolitionist movement. They were at the heart of the civil rights movement. Christians, when they love God and love other people and they they catch a hold of actually doing something with the thing that is breaking their heart, do amazing things. 
and leave God's fingerprints all over this place. But the culture that we live in tries to really hijack this idea that, you know, that like we have as a Christian, we say that, you know, God sees everybody as valuable. Everybody has inherent worth and value in God's eyes. No matter what your color, race, background, uh, how much money you have, all that junk, it doesn't matter to God. He sees everybody as worthy and valuable and loved by him. And the culture we live in tries to take that idea and kind of hijack it and be more like, you know, we have to be okay with everybody. And it's like sort of similar, but it's not the same. Our culture wants us to be okay with everybody, no matter what their faith, no matter what they believe, no matter what their background, no matter what sexuality they choose or now what gender they want to be or any of this stuff, our culture is telling us just accept everybody. And it's, it sounds similar-ish, but it's not the same. God's love is more like this. If you've ever had a baby, you can really relate. God's love is more like a loving father who sees his son or daughter for the very first time as this little infant, this little helpless little baby, and just looks on him with loving eyes and just is full of pride and excitement and joy at this, this little person made in his image. And he looks down at him with adoration and love that will last forever. Nothing can change that father's love for that infant. And sometimes infants grow up to be rebellious people that choose their own selfish ways and choose sinful things and, and things that separate them from their relationship with their father and mess up the relationship with their father and never for a minute, even if that relationship is broken and struggling and, and messed up and there's hurt and heartache, not for a minute does that father ever not love their kid. That's the kind of God we have. We have a God that looks at each and every one of us as sons and daughters whom he loves and adores. And does he approve of everything we do? Absolutely not. He gave us all kinds of guardrails and boundaries, and we blow past them all the time. It's not a, I'm okay with you no matter what. It's, I love you, and I want to make a way for you to be back in relationship with me. And we're so blessed and honored that God, his heart is broken by our condition of sin. Like the fact that there's sin and hurt and heartache in the world, God's heart broke for it and he made a way for that to be fixed. God didn't just sit there on his knees with a broken heart going, oh, this is so devastating that everyone, these people whom I love are lost and are astray. Bummer. No, he did something about it. The Bible says that he sent his one and only son so that whomever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have eternal life, right? Whomever. It wasn't just for Jews. It wasn't just for Gentiles. It wasn't if you had enough money. It was whoever. 
believes. And he did it one better. It was like, not only did he do that, but on top of that, it was while we were still out in the muck and the weeds and the sin and off of the rails in our life and not in relationship with him, even in spite of that, even then, he still did it. Even while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. I'm so grateful that we have a God who has a heart and compassion and love for us, but also is a God of action. This year, as we think about 2018 and what's coming up and plans and the future, I really pray that you'll think about that question. For you personally, what breaks your heart? What is that thing you can't get out of your head that's stirring your, stirring your heart? What is God up to? That's going to bring us to our time of communion, and we're going to do those uh, buckets first. So they're going to pass them down the middle, and they're going to go straight out to the left and right. Um, and then right after that, they'll pass the communion trays. And if you're new with us at Real Life, we have an open table, and that means that you do not have to be a member to have communion with us. Anybody that wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus can celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. So when they pass out the elements, please hold on to them, and we'll take them together here towards the end of service, okay? Sound good? While those are passing out, I kind of want to just wrap this whole idea up a little bit. Let's look at some nuggets to kind of chew on this week. Let's, they're in your notes on the bulletin, and then they're up here as well. Jesus taught that we don't assign value to people for any reason. People are inherently valuable. Amen, right? I don't have to have the perfect resume for God to be like, yeah, you're in or you're not in. God loved me from day one. Let's look at the next one. Our hearts can be broken by human need regardless of who or where those people are. They can be broken by human need regardless of where or who those people are. I gotta tell you, like sometimes God does some crazy stuff. Here is Nehemiah, far removed from those circumstances and from the condition that his people were in, and his heart broke for those people and God worked through Nehemiah in his action to do amazing things in Jerusalem. And it's like, couldn't anybody else have done that? Like, wasn't there hundreds of people that would have been qualified to just do a building project? Why Nehemiah? But I know that when he heard the news, his heart broke. And he cried out to God for days on end. A long time ago, um, when I was a first pretty young Christian, I hadn't really been a genuine Jesus follower. I had known about God, and I, I don't know, take that one as it may. I, I wasn't following God very, for very long, put it that way. And 
going to church and getting connected with people and starting to get in and involved in some studies and learning a little bit. And all of a sudden, I start thinking about stuff that made no sense to me personally. I was like, why am I thinking about this? Like I was having daydreams about youth ministry and doing Christian stuff with kids. And I just remember sort of laughing it off. Like, why is this coming up? And then this was really weird for me. I literally would wake up out of a dead sleep at night and have like this dream, like a movie I could play back, like me doing youth ministry stuff and have ideas. And I would get up in the morning and start writing out like youth ministry plans for like things I wanted to do with kids at a camp or some cool lesson I thought of or like, oh, this would be the coolest way to teach this thing. And then I would sort of just catch myself and I would be super excited. And then I would just kind of laugh like, why am I thinking about this? I don't even, I've never even been to a youth group in my life, God. What are you talking about? And I got to a point where it kept coming up and coming up and coming up that I got to a point where I had to just kind of draw a line in the sand and go, all right, God, either I'm going to listen and do something about this. I have no idea what that looks like. But I'm either going to deal with it and address it or I'm going to have to kind of do the old, like, stop talking to me. Like, I'm going to have to take a left turn at Albuquerque because it is not going away. And so... That led me to go and have a conversation with Aaron Couch lots and lots of years ago. And to go sit down with Aaron and Jim and say, this may sound sort of crazy. I'm totally not qualified. I have no idea what I'm asking, but I really think I'm supposed to do youth ministry. I don't even know what that is. I just am like, it's not going away. So what do I do next? And thank God I, I stepped up to some awesome Christian guys and they stepped in the mess with me and started figuring it out. Who knows what God is up to, what God is pressing on your heart, what he is giving you this brokenness about that he's stirring your heart. Who knows what God is up to? That brings us to the last one. When God stirs our hearts for others, it may be a reflection of what God feels for them as well. I'm not God, and I don't know what's going on in your heart, right? But I'll say this. If something is really in your craw, like it's that thing that just won't go away, and, and there's that stuff that you wrestle with like that really genuinely makes you sad, as a lover of God and a lover of his people, it bothers you. Man, I would just say don't dismiss it lightly. Don't just shove it to the side and ignore it. Bust out your journal like Nehemiah and start writing out and talking to God about it. Put it on paper. Talk to another Christian about it. See what God's up to. And you may be thinking of all the excuses like, well, what would I do about it or how? And I don't have the money and all that stuff. Let God worry about that. Let God worry about it. I'm so glad that God is a God of action and that he didn't just leave us hanging, that his heart broke for us and that he loved us enough to send his only son. And that's why we do this each and every week. Remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and told him to eat this in remembrance of him.
in the same way he took the cup and he told him that this was a, the cup represented the cup of the new covenant and that we should drink it in remembrance of him. God, we love you. Thanks for being an awesome and loving and compassionate and merciful God, but also thanks for being a God of action. God, give us boldness to follow wherever you lead. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.